On this edition of New Mexico Rising, we have a conversation with Republican State Representative Rebecca Dowd. She represents Truth to Consequences New Mexico in District 38. She is also running for governor under the GOP ticket. We'll talk to her about that race and her adventures in the legislature. Stay tuned. Today on New Mexico Rising, we're going to be having a conversation with Rebecca Dow. As a state representative for the 38th District, Dow has shown herself to be a political force to be reckoned with. By maintaining classical Republican stances on issues such as marijuana, legalization, abortion, and mandatory paid sick leave for employees, she currently serves as the Republican House Caucus Chair. In early July, she announced her campaign to become the next governor of New Mexico, and many within the Republican Party consider her to be the frontrunner. We will be speaking with her about pressing matters in the state and her thoughts on the legislative landscape going into 2022, as well as what she plans to do should she become the next governor of New Mexico. But before we invite her on, Thad, what is going on? I know that you were kind of upset a little bit over a little thing going on there was a letter that was sent out well well first things first good afternoon everybody and uh welcome back to another edition so yeah what really grinds my gears ladies and gentlemen was this uh basically a letter that was signed by most of our federal congressional um uh what is it uh what is it uh delegation and a lot of the a lot of state reps was to encourage private companies um, or private entities to enforce a uh, we wouldn't call it a vaccine passport but the very least showing proof of of you having your papers in order before you enter any establishment or before you are allowed to go to work or back to work yeah this grinds my gears well, it's a family show because I, I I could say a lot of expletives for that. I understand the fear um, because this is what has been going on for the last month with this Delta variant. But you do understand there there is a nasty precedent that will be set when one determines that you cannot operate within polite society or participate in the economic system in any way, shape, or form, be it an employee, be it a patron, without, I don't know, having on you a piece of paper or some other type of biometric mark um, to participate in the system. I I, I think this is... um, this is potentially, uh, what is it, uh, discriminatory. It should be litigated uh, at the very least so we can test it in the courts to see if this is even something possible. And I will use the F word here. It's kind of economic fascism because (laughs) I suspect that if, per se, businesses or private entities decide not 
to do this, that public health orders uh, or at the very least health departments or any type of regulatory body, be it, I don't know, CRS or anything, any amount of pressure will be applied to businesses that decide. I don't really think that's a good idea in light of the fact that I can't get workers to come to work. So, you know, that hurts. You're also going to put extremely more onerous public health regulations on me because of, you know, the Delta variant. Right. You're 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 paying most of my employees who I can't get to come back to. I don't know. uh, Stay home. You've scared the citizenry to the point where they don't want to come back out and they've pretty much gotten used to not going out. Now you're going to put on top of the fact that you're going to limit my ability to let people in and out of my establishment because I'm putting this now onerous requirement on them. That will help business and that will definitely help our unemployment rate. Well, it seems to be, you know, more of the same where they do this carrot and stick sort of thing. They always start off with the carrot and they're like, hey, you know, we're going to go ahead and suggest that everybody does this. But that kind of takes me into the issue that was grinding my gears, which is that the state was touting and all excited over, you know, the fact they have an over 90% vaccination rate inside the prisons. That's a captive audience. <laughs> and, and there was a whistleblower that went on, you know, our, our friend Stu Peters, Red Voice Media. For those of you that don't know him, go check him out. He's very good. But there was a whistleblower from our Department of Corrections that went on there and explained how they were basically holding it over people's heads. They were denying them the ability to visit their family and obviously keeping them in their cells 23 hours a day, which is actually more than that. You know, they, they, roughly they get about 15 minutes to make phone calls and everything else. And so it's like, no wonder they're going to take the shot. Uh, number one, they're not, you know, they have zero access to any information. So it's even worse than Facebook. Um, <laughs> but but then they expect that to happen. So it's it's just more of that carrot and stick until they put you in a cage, probably. Mm. But, you know, that's, that's our very black-pilled assessment. Well, I guess we should see what our guest thinks about some of this stuff. Hi there. Mrs. Dow, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind in what you're talking about is some of the areas where we see uh, a prison, for example, mm-hmm. theoretically, some of the reasons they wanted to uh, decrease criminalization and uh, carceration rates is because the majority of folks in New Mexico prison are people of color. So we have this party that talks about institutional racism, and yet you're using their power over people who are powerless because of their circumstances mm-hmm. and are most likely people of color. So it's just so hypocritical all the way around. And even before COVID, uh, I was one of those representatives who was fighting to protect conscientious objection, religious objection to vaccinations Mm -hmm. or lowering the age of minors to consent to vaccinations without their or any sort of medical treatment without their parents' involvement. And so um, this is an issue of family members having responsibility and partnership with their healthcare providers of making decisions for minors. And if you talk about, you talked about a 90% vaccination rate in prisons, we're somewhere near that when you talk about adults. So when we hear this 70% vaccination rate for our state, that is including the population under 12. So when you remove the children who cannot get vaccination out of that equation, I've heard the figures in the upper 80s to 90s. I don't have the, the fact in front of me right yeah, now. Yeah, I've got very those high. somewhere around. And, and I know yeah. it did suggest that, especially amongst uh, the elderly. They're uh, very... You are most at risk, yeah. Yeah. Right, which is how we 
were believed to how we were led to believe that that was the best way to tranche this out. So I can't I take it that the fact that by you stating those facts and stuff like that, then you're not really in, uh, I guess, support of these backdoor vaccine mandates. My priority and what I support the most is protecting the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of New Mexico, our rights as individuals uh, to have it, to make informed to make decisions based on information we're given, and to protect liberty. So I definitely uh, believe that liberty is the priority to protect. And so, from that perspective, I think at this point, uh, before we should mandate anyone further get vaccinated, mandate. Uh, mm -hmm. No one's making it illegal to get vaccinated. No one's uh, right. discouraging anyone from wearing a mask. But at this point, folks have really good reasons why they haven't. And it may be a discussion they had with their healthcare provider. They may have already had COVID. They may have had COVID in one shot with very adverse uh, responses. Um, mm -hmm. They may have factors that that have caused I mean, people have died from the vaccination. And so people are making these decisions based on information, observation and conversations with their doctors and their own personal research, which prior to COVID, we were allowed to do. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I believe in freedom and personal liberty. Well, as part of that freedom, um, I mean, what is your attitude about the mandates we've seen go through at New Mexico State University and the University yeah. of New Mexico recently? You know, I know people personally who had no intention on getting the shot and saw no need to get the shot, but now they've got to rethink that so that they can go to school. I mean, do you yeah. feel like that's an appropriate stick? I don't believe that anyone of our founding fathers intended for government to make our health decisions for us. And so um, I think that when we're saying that the diseases of poverty are related to lack of education and that we're trying to give people opportunity. And again, many of the, the, the majority of the population at UNM are uh, students of color. And we say to them, you can have opportunity in America, in New Mexico, in at UNM, if and we're putting those sorts of boundaries on it, then it, it seems double talk to me, especially considering the fact that many of the people who still remain unvaccinated have a really good reason why. And uh, that's what uh, personal responsibility comes with risk. And they've measured those often with their healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, if you've done the research, there's some people out there saying, you know, it's like when, when my children were young, it was right when the chickenpox vaccination were coming out. So as a child, anyone my age, you know, you just got it. Yeah. And, and some of our parents took us over to the neighbor friend's house just to get it, parties. Just yep. to get it over with. <laughs> and you just get it once. You just get it once and then you have the immunity for the rest of your life. And so when my children were young and the vaccination was coming out, but it wasn't mandatory, I asked my children's pediatrician, should I give it to him? And he goes, it's so new. And there's probably going to be variations of it. Uh, we don't know if they're going to need booster shots. You know, just let them get just let them get the chicken pox. Yeah. And so that's what happened with my children. And many of their friends who did get the shot early on had a variation of a shingle type disease or like half of a chicken pox. Kind of it was a weird thing that was going on there for a while. And it took a while, years for them to work that kink out. They got a booster later on. And so now it's very safe, very trusted, uh, very reliable. And I, we, we may get there. We may get there with COVID. We may not. So we'll see. There's so many variations. And, and uh, for folks, especially folks who have had COVID, uh, the research is getting stronger and stronger, showing that that, that uh, natural immunity is the strongest of all. And so uh, we shouldn't discard that. No, I, th I think that's right over target when you talk about natural immunity. I know that I was sick in January um, of 2020, and I haven't really been sick since. And I've been to plenty of so-called super spreader events. So 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what that means. I would uh, I would also say that I am also a two time COVID survivor. I I need a ribbon for that. I guess uh, <laughs> I don't know what the color would be, but yeah, I it really does uh, baffle me that, that we don't talk about natural immunity the way we used to do so. And it's gotten almost to the point where if you look at the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition online now, vaccinated from a definitional standpoint has changed. So You know, that is that is something I've noticed a lot, that these virtual dictionaries and the fact that we don't have this book anymore, that it doesn't take long to revision to revise, definitions are changing daily. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, on, on a, a variety of issues, not sure. just in regards to this definition. Right, right, right. I mean, I've seen uh, this. To see our, dic- our dictionaries definitions change in real time is another thing we should be concerned about. And, and I, I mean, I thought it was always, you know, uh, folks... Uh, we're supposed to question everything, especially the government. It's 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 like I'm, something I've never seen before. Yes, it's it's uh, bizarre to put it. My yeah, bizarre is bizarre is the um, politically correct way of saying it. Um, yeah, there and are I'm other not, words. I'm not, I don't I don't know of any folks that are. I mean, you could. I'm not telling anyone what to do. I'm not an anti-vaxer. I'm not an anti-masker. But yeah. I am for people to be able to make decisions informed decisions in partnership with a healthcare provider and the government shouldn't be over. A lot of politicians are playing doctor right now yeah, and they shouldn't be. Yeah. It's a, you know, as this so-called Delta variant continues to spread and I've been working pretty hard the last week to actually track down exactly how many of these tests are sent off for genetic testing to determine whether or not they are the Delta variant. And that's kind of led to its own problems, but let's just assume that everything's on the up and up. Um, But as it continues to spread, I think part of that conversation when you talk about personal freedom is how it affects other people. And that seems to be the argument from a lot of folks is that it's not really a matter of personal freedom because when you're spreading this virus around, that's kind of an infringement on other people's liberties. How do you respond to that? We have to go back to the Constitution and we have to go back to what was intended with our freedoms. I mean, there is going to be so many different diseases, so many different viruses. We're living in a different world. Unless we're just going to continue to wear a mask in perpetuation, then we have to figure out where we move as a free society uh, because this is not freedom. Yeah. Yeah. No. Amen. Well, I guess, you know, we can talk about that. But moving on, let's talk about uh, education. And as, of course, to dovetail into uh, this mask issue. So, of course, um, the PED, uh, for lack of a better word, dissolved or suspended an entire school board in Floyd, New Mexico. Um, First chair, uh, I guess, uh, uh, Robert Aragon um, is basically representing, uh, you know, the suspended suspended members and stuff like that. Um, I guess give us your thoughts on that. That's uh, that's definitely... um, not the first time, in our opinion, that the PED has kind of overreached. Yeah. You know, if, if we could rewind time, I think there's a lot of legislators on both sides of the aisle who would redo uh, what happened in the Richardson administration when the public education department was established. And uh, we have seen the erosion of local school boards uh, since that has happened. And it's my understanding, I don't have the document, but it's my understanding that the governor's asked for clarification if she even needs, if we can have the, uh, she can have authority over the school boards, uh, either through her health orders or in perpetuity, if if she can just take over, overstep their authority. So these are elected officials. And this is what is so great by design. We are not a, a, a democracy. We are a constitutional republic. On top of that, 
uh, so we have individual state rights. We are a Western state that makes us unique among others. And so many, many rules that are passed that are, are very, have a very, very different impact for people living in a metro area than the majority of us who live in the rural areas. And so I think that when any local decision making is possible, that's where the authority should be given. So um, obviously, if I'm elected governor, I will push for local decision making. So you've got Floyd School District, which is a majority minority school district again, <laughs> and they elected officials school board officials to be their voice and to help their superintendents and their educators make decisions for their children. And uh, th this was a unanimous, it's consensus. Uh, I haven't heard of disagreement. You know, I haven't talked to every parent, every staff person in that district, but this is a community that's united. This is a community where the school district has an average of 12 students in a classroom. They've been able to comply with social distancing the entire time. And all those COVID safe practice rules, the one that they are not willing to implement right now is the mandatory mask for children under 12. This is a 0.001% rate of death. I don't know, this latest yeah. study that I read showed of um, a handful of deaths that occur, they could really only attribute among thousands, tens of thousands of children, they could only attribute directly 25 to COVID death. So parents know these facts, teachers know these facts, local elected school boards know these facts, and they chose no ma mask mandate for children under 12 and no mask mandate for uh, teachers that were vaccinated. Now, they didn't say you couldn't wear a mask. So any parent that wanted their child a mask could still do it. And they didn't say teachers could not wear a mask. So any teacher who still wanted to wear a mask could do it. And this is in an environment where the population of the classroom is below 50% capacity and everyone can social distance. Yeah. Uh, so the gov government comes in and says no. And that is what it's not related to mask and vaccinations, but there has been an ongoing lawsuit with 21, now 24 school districts out of 87 saying PED is overstepping their boundaries. Local school boards have authority. We are elected officials. You cannot micromanage us. And I, that lawsuit is has been going on uh, for quite a while now, well over a year. Uh, and so it's definitely one of the very important lawsuits that happened in our state. What I've noticed is that this governor is willing to do anything, even if it's unlawful, because she knows it takes time to go through the courts, to appeal, to go to the Supreme Court and make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so she just has no regard for law at all. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah, you hit a lot of uh, points there that were going to come up as part of that discussion. So good oh, job. Anyway. <laughs> oh, no, no. It, it's, it's Wait, it's, an informed, ready-to-run-running right? gubernatorial candidate? Gosh, you should vote for me in Horror. the primary. The horror. <laughs> it does seem that with the exception of government officials, welfare mooches, and global corporations, everyone wants to get back to normal. Um, what is the pathway to leaving this pandemic behind? Okay, well, that was In a very loaded, loaded question. Well, I like to load them up. Um, I definitely think that the, this governor should be joining the majority of states. I don't know where we're at. Last time I checked, which was weeks ago, 27 states, uh, and ending the extended unemployment benefits. That is like job one. Um, I believe that if I were governor and I had billions of dollars in COVID aid that I was spending however I wanted with without regard to the appropriators, which are the House and the Senate, that um, I would be focusing on getting people back to work rather than spinning a wheel and giving out you know prizes. And so getting back to work could be happening in lots of different ways. Uh, we have water infrastructure, wastewater infrastructure, treatment, water treatment, drinking water treatment, our ditches, our canals. There's hundreds of thousands, millions and millions of dollars in projects that would help us address our water crisis crisis in our state. We can't, we can't address a drought 
but we definitely can manage our water better. Those projects would create jobs and get people to work, good paying jobs with, um, you know, uh, scale, scaled salaries and, and benefits. Yeah. And you can do the same with roads. You can do the same. So many municipalities. I've got entire zip codes that are on septic. You know, for example, the, the city of Elephant Butte, almost every resident is on septic, mm-hmm. not a sewage system. And so, and many of those septic systems are old and need to be replaced. There's, and, and, and those are the type of infrastructure projects, not this new term of human infrastructure, but real capital investments in bricks and mortar would be getting us back to work at the same time, creating lasting improvements for our cities and municipalities that simply don't have the, the tax base and the property tax because so much of our state is federal and state land. It's, it's hard to generate GRT for many communities. But right. instead, we're passing these, you know, uh, qualified immunity bills where every municipality is going to be facing multi-million dollar payouts if someone violates anyone's civil rights. It's crazy. Hmm. Well, let's move away, I guess, from the public health matters, I guess, slightly. And let's talk back. Let's talk about the workings of the state government. Um, so is the I, state government working? That is definitely debatable. So um, so if I'm correct, that this is your third term. This is my third term. Yes. Yeah. All right. And so you're a Republican House uh, caucus chair. So you're a mover and shaker up there. So um, the strong desire to kind of get legislation done that's going to help this people of New Mexico and stuff like that. But you do understand, I guess, you and you, obviously, you know that you're in the minority. Um, you know, with that said, starting back in January, uh, this January coming up, you guys are going to get back into back into the swing of things. Um, what does the legislative legislative landscape, I guess, look like this for this upcoming session, what's on the agenda um, yeah. that the parties, Republicans, in at least uh, the legislature are pushing? Well, you know, I'm sure you're going to see Republicans pushing uh, comprehensive tax reform. You're going to be seeing them push for local decision making with school boards, giving authority back to school boards, uh, election integrity, you know, no foreign uh, machines, software used in our election systems. Um, you're going to see them uh, pushing bills for uh, reforms in redistricting. We are we did not make that to the uh, constitutional amendment. It needs to be done. Uh, we want to see a parent bill of rights. I want to see a parent bill of rights. Limits on the governor's powers. Uh, that, the bill that passed in 1973 for these health emergencies, we mm. had uh, one person who I actually got to serve with, Representative Bandy, said, no way, no how should anyone have that much power. And everyone else thought that they would have a governor who had a respect for the Constitution. That needs to be amended immediately. And, and I'd like to see amendments to the Ethics Commission. Um, I'm sure folks will be you know, it's a 30 day session. So the bills that we can introduce, they either have to have an appropriation with them. They have to be part of the budget or they have to be introduced and on the call by the governor. So the 30 day session is more difficult. You don't get to introduce anything you want. And, you know, these I, I introduce bills on always on education reform, uh, tax credits, uh, education savings accounts, parents right if their special needs child is not getting the services that they're entitled to through the American Disability Act that they can go to a private vendor that's actually already federal law but trying to codify that in state law and these bills rarely get hearings or move out of the first committee well and that's part of the problem I mean even when you talk about limiting these powers and not being on the agenda I guess what is the goal is that is that just to have the argument there um, because even if you were to pass these things that limited gubernatorial powers obviously, she's not going to sign it, even if you got it passed. 
So I, you know, I guess to me that that seems to be part of the issue where it's like you, you talk about moving forward in a bipartisan manner, but there's no reason for the Democrats to be bipartisan. Well, it's interesting that you say that because my freshman term, we were in the minority. I've only served in the minority, but there were enough moderate Democrats, Democrats who own businesses or were in some sort of a swing seat that were engaged with their constituents. And, and we were able, the first bill in the first committee, I offered an amendment that was considered friendly and accepted. And that happened all the time. So my freshman term, I felt the work was very bipartisan. The, um, the uh, process of making a bill was intentional. It was deliberate. There was deliberation. There were amendments. And that made the bills better. Most of those uh, representatives in my freshman year, when, we, when I was running for sophomore, they were targeted by the progressives and removed from office. And then the same thing happened my third term to senators, those moderate Democrats uh, that were common sense, typically business owners, and they you know, signed the front of the check. They were targeted by progressives and they were removed from office each year, each term after my reelection, the 60 day session has become more and more partisan, more and more divisive. And I mean, the debate is limited. We can present a bill or present an amendment. It's moved to table without discussion. It, the limited uh, public comment and the lack of engagement, especially during COVID, when you don't even have to look someone in the face when you're passing a bill that closes the door on their business when it leaves their community worse off than when they started the session. No accountability. They didn't have to look anybody in the eyes when they made those votes. It's gotten really bad. And that's one of the reasons I'm running. I mean, these are the best years of my life. Uh, I'm 48. I guess it's the new uh, 30 because people keep asking me, how are your children? How are your children handling this? I don't know. They're married. They got businesses. (laughs) Ask them. But anyway, so um, uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm running. I have the energy and the will to see New Mexico thrive. So uh, it's time and, you know, I know it's very partisan and, and folks posture on either side of the aisle. But once I'm elected, uh, then then to do business with me will require bipartisan spirit and collaborative uh, effort to put New Mexicans first. So how do you reason with these people then, these much more radical elements that have kind of basically been elected over the last couple terms? I mean, give us an example that's is there a, anyone you've currently I, worked with that, that, that oh you gosh, currently lots, work with yeah. okay that that you could yeah. possibly work with who are one of these more uh, progressive oh yes oh gosh yes i you know some of the work that i got to do even this last session that was very bipartisan was reinstating the uh, in-state meat inspections well, you know there's four packers in the us and they have our ranchers over a barrel uh, our beef, almost all of our beef, like over 95% leaves the state never to return. And if we had our own in-state uh, processing, not only could we control uh, the economic, we, you know, the economics of the, the processing and we, New Mexicans could consume New Mexico beef. And we'd have a little bit of a buffer to the crazy things that are happening with these major packers right now. Uh, it's practically a monopoly. And so that was one that had a lot of bipartisan support on both sides of the aisle. No, no votes to the entire House and Senate. And um, ultimately, it, the bill didn't pass, but the the uh, the app, the money in the process we need to promulgate the rules did get done through House Bill 2, and it's happening as we speak. Another example would be the work more and more people. I used to kind of be by myself with just a few of my friends on the Republican side, but more Democrats than ever are looking for ways to have meaningful reform at CYFD. And there is a, a variety of bills and, and basically the executive and the governor just wouldn't allow it to happen. Uh, people are coming along in a bipartisan way to say, look, you know, these policies have just eroded the ability
ability for lawmakers to do their job. So there's people on extremes, but there's still people out there saying, wait a minute, because we are all impacted by rule of law. We all want to walk down the street and be safe. We all want to know that there's consequences when you do bad things and you're rewarded when you do and you're safe when you do good. So those are some of the areas where there's bipartisan, but the folks in power, the people who chair the committees and the governor is are the ones blocking some of the things that people on both sides of the aisle want to see happen because they're actually representing their constituents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's kind of the way it goes. Um, I know one of the things that we could do to get back to normal, if we talk about that is to improve the economic landscape in general, you mentioned the meatpacking and obviously that's helpful in, in many ways, but you've also been a very staunch supporter from what I've seen of spaceport America. Um, what are the benefits I know Thad and I have been pretty critical of it, even though our nerd loves it. Our inner nerds love it. But but what are the economic benefits to everyday New Mexicans of continued funding of Sir Branson's enterprise down there? Well, well, I think that's the first thing is the, the misnomers. So I was not in office when Spaceport America was built. That 200 million, sorry, my earpiece keeps falling out. That 200 million capital investment was done under Richardson and I was not in office but it does happen to be in my county because mm -hmm. it's in my county. I get to go out there and, and see what's going on. I've seen uh, NASA endeavors, uh, Lockheed Martin, Mars Rover's been out there. They've been landing the shuttle, you know, the, the capsule that comes out of the shuttle it used to have to land on water, but now it, with new technologies, it can land uh, right there at the spaceport. I think the bigger thing is not the spaceport because that's one tool. And it's an important mm -hmm. tool because of the dedicated airspace, because uh, we are uh, above sea level and there's not salt to erode the infrastructure. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to that location. But the bigger picture is the space industry, which is the fastest growing industry in the world. My freshman year, it was around $236 billion a year. This year, it's surpassing $500 billion investment and only going up. We are, our history is deep with um, space investment and space endeavors and breakthroughs. And this is no exception. I think about the fact that we said no to, to um, Bill Gates and we said no to Microsoft. We said no to Steve Jobs. We said no to Apple and Silicon Valley's in California. I just do not want us to say no to this growing space industry. We should be um, the, uh, the spaceport valley. And I mean, up and down I-25, we have hundreds of companies whose focus is space, space and space endeavors. Uh, from, I, I think the 20 million or 20 billion, I, I, yeah, it could be 20 billion. The amount of investment in New Mexico and space industry is huge with our labs, with our, our, um, our Air Force and our bases that are in New Mexico, we shouldn't be left behind. And Spaceport is a piece of that. So it's not necessarily on a lever of Spaceport. And Richard Branson's not the only act out, out there. Two of my favorite are one's called Spin Lunch, and it's basically mm -hmm. a slingshot the size of the Statue of Liberty, and it goes 4,000 miles an hour and slings a satellite suborbital, uh, and it connects us with 5G in about a 200-mile radius. And that's that's a pretty cool thing that's going on out there, as well as the air environments. There's a lot, but most of them have a non-disclosure agreement. These two companies have gone public, and so there's air environments, and that's like a 300-foot glider somewhat all the top of it of the pan it's it's um solar panels all on top of this glider and it it stays suborbital for six months at a time also projecting it's kind of the final mile the last mile of getting uh high speed technology to our homes and businesses and uh, where broadband just doesn't make sense anymore even though new mexico's investing 
millions and millions in broadband, uh, we have satellite technology that's that's rapidly replacing that need for the last mile. So it's it's the idea of space, the space industry and the space, the growth of space industry more so than just spaceport. And yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's a, you know, it's, I think what it is, is, I think a lot of people, when they see the fact that I remember when, you know, that was announced and ground broke and yeah. the, there were a lot of missteps out at the, at the, at the awarding the contracts, the construction of the facility and how long it took. And so I think what people were kind of wary of, and I think they tend to forget that, uh, that yeah, later on, um, the state, you know, the state subsidy was the state subsidy, but like, yeah, it, it, it looked like a boondoggle for 20 years, right, before we finally got the demonstration. Yeah. And so you can you can see why some people who, you if, know. If you're, if you're counting Virgin's flight as the demonstration. but there's Right, that, that would be considered yeah, success. Department of Defense. Yeah. Yes, but there's lots of other things going out there. I think last year, the, um, the spaceport, 67% of their funding came from private industry. So it's not as subsidized as it used to be. I'm not justifying any subsidy that's out there at all, but I'm just saying like they are moving towards self-sufficiency. And I'm sure if this was a private endeavor or even a public-private partnership in the management side, it would be making money. So it's just an example of government uh, where I feel the same way about state parks. Our state parks are running to the ground and uh, they don't see these things as enterprise as we should. And we put so many layers into the ability to operate that we don't see the the, re, the rate of return that we could. And so we just need a governor who understands that these endeavors are enterprise and need to generate revenue. And that the only way to generate revenue isn't just to put more tax on the same people who are already paying taxes. We need to grow our economy in innovative ways and the bureaucracy prevents innovation and spaceport's yeah. no exception. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's interesting where that's the biggest complaint. I think is that the talk is always all oh, we need to make, you know, level playing field so that, you know, businesses can get ahead, but that's not what we see when yeah. we talk about these highly subsidized industries, whether you're talking about the film, you know, yada, 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 but it's like, and then people get really interested in very specific things. I know one thing that you opposed and I was curious as to why is the legalization of recreational marijuana. Yeah. What, so what was the reasoning behind opposing that? Well, first, I have to say that that I have supported hemp and the investment of hemp in an industry in our state, as well as the expansion of medical marijuana. And so um, I'm not opposed to using any sort of crop to make the quality of our lives better. But the idea that marijuana is going to replace oil and gas, one, is absurd. So okay. second of all, this bill is over, I mean, it was close to 300 pages. Uh, the amendments and substitutes that were being presented to us on a dime were, you know, minutes to make a decision before you vote. The things that I was looking at, you know, I'm very concerned about water. You're, if you hear spending time with me, you'll hear me talk about uh, water management, uh, land management. We need to to address this water crisis in our state. It's a crisis of epic proportion. So yeah. the fact that someone could occupy a vacant Kmart, hook up to you know the Albuquerque City Utilities and have no regulation on their water usage is of concern to me. The fact that it didn't go through the New Mexico Department of Agriculture where every other crop is handled, but it went through licensing and regulations, you know that is of a concern to me. And so when we create these carve outs and special examples and we have to go like this with rules and regulations to make an industry work, or to make a bill pass, and you're talking about carve-outs and special favors, why is this not at the New Mexico Department of Ag? Those are the types of reasons why I would vote no. And maybe I'm getting a little cynical, 
because in my freshman year, I used to say, I don't know about this bill. I better vote yes. And maybe I'll find out before it gets to the floor if I want to vote no. Now I'm leaning more towards it's like the rule of commas. If in doubt, leave it out. Let's get it right. Because people would say, well, go ahead and pass this and we'll fix it later. But I haven't seen a lot of effort in amendments on bills, even when they're bad. Yeah. And so um, I've, I leaned a lot more towards no's than I did in my freshman term. Yeah, I guess your concerns are valid. And, it has, and as someone who was on the ground, uh, so to speak, kind of seeing how the sausage was made when this bill was done, I've talked to many people who are now wanting to get into this nascent industry, and they do find that it was very rushed. Um, the rules aren't real, that were propagated in the beginning were awful. And then people went back and, you know, yelled and complained at this new this new bureaucracy that will now administer this. And they made slight changes, but more, uh, I don't know, touchy feel good type of language as opposed to like, yeah, issues of addressing water usage and stuff. But to the and point of the water. You know, the it, other thing is, is I don't believe that counties were given the, in the end, the ability to opt out. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is okay. correct. There, um, there are very few limitations that local municipalities can put on the placement other than the simple the kind of blanket placement of uh what i call uh the sins the consumption the consumable sins um so they still have to be 300 feet away or 600 feet away from schools and churches and stuff like that but they were they were greatly curtailed in their ability to um put any sort of additional limits and stuff like that case in point the albuquerque city council attempting to try or someone on the city council of albuquerque trying to present something to limit it which it's kind of nonsensical, but at the same time, it got kind of shot down. So, yeah, I mean, there are there are big holes in it. I mean, this is better than the first one that came to the floor that you were talking about during your freshman term. Uh, that much one better. was much, it, much better. Oh, my goodness. See, and see, I and I've heard from people that that one was slightly worse. But so, I understand so that, I understand was, that like no one, the, municip yeah. the local municipalities weren't given um, the ability to opt out like the first bill like gave them the ability to do if I'm remembering the yeah. first one correctly. Right. So, yeah, so I, I, think I, the, I think the the idea is that I've come to a point where I have these philosophical die on the sword issues. And one of those is going to be local decision making, because I realize there are people leaving our state because of laws that we pass and maybe they could move to a different county instead. But we're we are not. Uh, giving folks in small and local communities the ability to shape the type of environment that they want to live in, where they want to do business and where they want to raise their children. And so I, you know, I, it, it's, it is what it is, but it, it in it, these bills are getting bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger. And they, this one is a good example of one that could have been broken up into different ones, one to address maybe social justice and criminal justice. Yes. Reform. <laughs> it could have been broken up. It could have been broken up. And yeah. so this is where they give us these like massive bills and then say, Rebecca voted against old people, but not tell you all the other things that were in the bill or, you know, yeah. so I, these things are very complicated, much more complicated than they have to be. And the status quo statement is let's pass it and we'll fix it later. And it's difficult to do. Yeah, A valiant of defense of your nay vote. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking <laughs> of complicated, uh, you were recently in my neck of the woods in Farmington and you were talking with miners who supply coal for the San Juan generating yeah. station. The the pinning acquisition by Avangard. Avangrid. Avangrid. It's Ibadrola Avangrid. I'm, st I'm still trying to get all that straight. Mm -hmm. I'll leave that to Hector. But um, it requires PM to derive 80% of its electricity from renewable resources by 2000. Madness. The Energy Transition Act. 
what does that do to the future of energy production in New Mexico? What do, how do you see that working out? Yeah, quite so, frankly, so that's all. all yeah, so you guys know my district is home with the second largest copper mine in the United States. Yes. And there's lots of unmined minerals in my district because we haven't permitted a new mine since the 90s. And so, it, you know, first of all, green energy is so unreliable. It is so unreliable because of weather that we have to back up with alternative fuels unless we just want rolling blackouts. And so there's no way to, to remove ourselves from deficiency uh, on any dependency on um, natural gases, oil and gas, and coal. And so especially with the new technology, coal can be emissions free. And so it is just heartbreaking to see what's happening up in Farmington, knowing that less than 6% of our energy is coming from green energy and knowing how dependent green energy is on oil and gas, on mining uh, to, in order to be created. That's how, that's how solar panels, that's how wind turbines are created and they remain unreliable once they're in place. So even though we have these examples of California and we have examples of where it's not adequate or where the, the utility rates have gone so high that, that people who are vulnerable, that are on fixed incomes, our senior citizens, our veterans, our people on disability, they, they have their dollar goes less far because they're on a fixed income. It's, it's just the height of hypocrisy. I, those miners up in Farmington and, and the people working on the stripper wells are so proud of the work that they do. And I'm so thankful because I can go over right now and turn on my oven and a flame comes on and I can get a cup of tea right now. And we're going in a direction that's pushing us further and further towards looking like Venezuela. It's scary as all get out. It's scary. If yeah. we were to right now, if everything made out of a petroleum product, if everything processed through uh, energy that's that uses coal were to go away, then we would be sitting in a black room and the studio would not exist and we wouldn't have very many clothes on. And <laughs> it, well, I think we really got to look at what happened in Texas. I mean, it's no joke when they, when you impose these sorts of regulations, the disaster that can happen. I mean, that was a regulatory nightmare where the only reason why they couldn't supply power there was because of an agreement like this. And then when they pressed and they said it to the Department of Energy, they wanted to turn on the coal-fired stuff again. And they said, no, you can't do that. They didn't care yeah. that people were dying in their homes in the midst of this blizzard. And it's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. And yeah they I want think to blame. coal yeah. and nuclear, the world is saying that coal and nuclear are some of the, clean, the cleanest fuels. In, in post-EPA, this post-Obama EPA environment, climate environment, the technology is there for coal to be produced clean without emissions and, and to capture those CO2s. It's amazing. The technology is amazing. We've seen presentations on it and it doesn't move the progressives one bit. Yeah, the reality and the yeah. facts don't move them one bit. Yeah, we live in a but state they where... Also, they also didn't care when, when, when elderly people were waiting in bread lines to get food. They didn't care about that either. So yeah. any there is no all or nothing answer to anything. It's just crazy to see such radical positions impacting yeah. our daily lives. People are going to yeah. be cold. Yeah, it drives and, me insane uh, that we live in a state where we have two nuclear weapons facilities that where we have nuclear scientists and physicists who study this stuff. And the fact that we don't have much more advanced reactors to, you know, maybe back up some of this nascent green energy. They ignore the fact that the strip mining that has to ha happen, that they, you know, deplore for coal still has to happen for the, the rare earth metals required for solar. They ignore all these aspects of it. And they're just going to plunge us head forward into something that they, from a physics standpoint, from a solar, talking about solar in particular, we can't do. We can't go beyond 37 to 38% efficiency. 
the material science isn't there yet. And yeah, I, I find it um, maddening. Um, I'm from South Carolina, my home state, where we don't really use a lot of natural gas. We use a lot of electric. You know why we use a lot of electric? Because we have two to three nuclear power stations within that state. And energy prices in South Carolina are dirt cheap. Um, so yeah, you're right. They don't listen to the science. They, they don't care. They're just evangelical in their, uh, and they're just, it's just, just it craving with it. I don't yeah. understand why. And look at the, look at the minerals required in the electric cars or hybrid cars that are being driven. I mean, like it, it, every single piece of that vehicle is mined, all of it. And the road that it's driving on. Well, some of these people, you'd think that they just, you know, they think stuff falls out of the sky comes to them but i think we've beat that up pretty good the bigger, yes, yes. The bigger um, picture of that the bigger picture of that is that we're it's when if it's, you're just a not in my backyard because i don't see these folks right uh you know they couldn't ride a bicycle that's made out of mine materials too i mean it, it, there's no way to live their lives without these minerals so it just comes down to a not in my backyard and then we're just getting these products overseas we're becoming more and more dependent on foreign countries who typically are not our friends china um <laughs> OPEC's yeah. buying oil yeah. overseas now. Oh, it's a mess. We have the uh, Permian Basin right here at home. Yeah. Wait till they drop the dollar from all that. Anyways, we don't want to go down that path right now. That's that's an ugly place. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to skip over your work with children. Oh, Obviously, you set you. up, you know, Apple Tree Educational Center, and you've worked with Sierra County Boys and Girls Club. You know, what is your role there? You know, and and what do you think? you can bring from that experience to New Mexico as governor. Well, thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. So I grew up in Truth or Consequences and I was visiting my parents when my children were young, they were, they were toddlers. And I saw my community through a different lens than I had as a child because it felt really great as a child, you know, riding horses in the Gila and swimming in the river. And, you know, I just had a great, great family, great childhood. So to see it through a different lens, seeing families in need, seeing children in situations that that they that didn't that weren't necessary. It, it, I had just gotten out of college and, and married. My kids were young. That's what compelled us to move back. So in, in 1999, I moved back to TRC and started a nonprofit. The original one was Apple Tree. And I don't even like to name the others because I'm not on the board. I'm not an employee. But I learned real quickly in my first run that uh, anything that I did that was good was going to be treated as if it was bad. And the folks I signed up to be a, a, a politician, but the fine working, uh, hardworking folks that do good work in my district did not. And so mm -hmm. I haven't been at my, my employment for over two years now. Uh, it hasn't stopped anything. They still get attacked. They still get audited. They still get IPRID. They still get deposed. Um, just maybe they think I'm uh, Stapleton, but I'm not. And this was terrible work. So I started a, a nonprofit, multiple nonprofits. I don't even want to name them anymore because <laughs> my name's not on paper and they're doing really great. So um, everything from home visiting to early childhood to early pre-K and pre-K after school programs throughout our district, the teen program that you mentioned, an internship program where we bring folks in and and they work and trade for their loan forgiveness and we provide them with housing and a behavioral health clinic that has all types of comprehensive uh, uh, kind of healing arts programs, music, movement, play, therapy, infant mental health, and even transitional housing for folks that are ready uh, to change their lives uh, post-incarceration. Usually 
as a result of uh, behavioral health or some sort of substance abuse. So I've done a lot of stuff in TRC that's resulted in cre the creation of 78 jobs. It's many, many dollars flowing into the district that didn't before. And um, folks who do those work with degrees, they have a pathway, uh, are making higher wages than the average income in Sierra County and with benefits. And they're doing good for others. So uh, that that has given me one of the programs. We do emergency placement for CYFD and we work with foster families. Mm -hmm. And so that has given me between all the agencies, they're regulated by 11 different agencies of the state. And so I have a very deep understanding of federal and state regulations on in, in several of our state agencies. Plus, you know, you have to work with tax and revenue. You have to work with workforce solutions. You have to work with these different entities, you know, the secretary of state and the nonprofit corporate reporting. So I have, I have a pretty broad understanding of a lot of agencies uh, that work and deal with families in crisis, children and, and school and Department of mm -hmm. Health, HSD, those kind of things. And so I think that's going to lend itself really well to me, especially with the swing voters. So when people look at this, there's I think there's eight of us ultimately that are being the primary for governor. Um, one, I'm the only one that's serving in the House. I've been serving my community for over two decades, my district. I'm in my third term and I'm ready to serve the state with ready to hit the ground ready because of the work that I've done my time in the house, I know who's in the house, who's in the Senate, who the bureaucrats are, who the deputy secretaries are that often stay um, and do, uh, versus the executives that are appointed by the governor. And also a lot of the practitioners and a lot of the, the folks that are, that are out throughout the state providing these services. And with what's going on with Albuquerque Public Schools and just PED general, PED mm -hmm. continues to blanket make things universal, just throw more money at it. But we leave those children behind that are in crisis, that 20% of the children that need the 80% of our attention. And it's really the opposite of what's happening. I mean, whether your child wants extended full day year round school or not, we're going to shove it down your throat. Yeah. Even if they're the valedictorian, they need more. But yet the child who's in crisis at CYFD is getting nothing additional. You know, every single program at CYFD is voluntary. And so um, that is what I'm most excited about being governor is to partner with these community organizations and to help reform these agencies so that we're targeting our dollars and our efforts to the children and the families that need it the most. Mm -hmm. And what's happening outside the school day, domestic violence, substance abuse, you know, the, the, the children that are victims of abuse and neglect. And it is just, I mean, this governor has the highest turnover rate of executive staff of any governor in the United States. And she's kept the CYFD secretary. <laughs> Throughout all of it. Yeah. I, I, I have no words. I have no words. But what I can tell you is that I'm, I'm tired of holding a broken baby. Yeah. I'm tired of being invited to funerals of children who died at the hand of abuse and neglect when it was preventable. And so we will see changes in our education when we have educational reforms that target children who need it the most, that are responsive to family need, that includes choice in my mind. I mean, I, I believe in education reform, including choice. And I think that families in Bernalillo who've been um, bullied by Albuquerque Public Schools and the unions who run them are ready for change. Yeah, you 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 have a lot of vision, I think. Um, you have some dreams, but we look forward. There's, there's actually a lot of time left. Mm -hmm under the under the uh, boot of our current governor unfortunately yeah lots of time I mean, to do a lot of damage yeah so that that was something that i was kind of curious to get your take on was you know should you be inaugurated in 2023 which seems like light years away right now but what do you think the challenges are going to be that you haven't foreseen you know are you are you looking yeah. ahead and going okay well she's going to be here for another two years how bad is it going to be by the time you have a chance to fix anything? Yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's bad already. And um, I have a lot more to learn than what I already know. So I know the basic workings of the system. I know that the governor can sign executive orders and I can end them. She yeah. can appoint people to commissions and I can change them. She can pass rules and regulations and we can reverse them. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not going to be naive to the fact that, you know, if when we reverse those, there are going to be lots of lawsuits and lots of attacks. And, and it says if, you know, you go to a train wreck, <laughs> which is what I would define government in the state of New Mexico, a train wreck, you would yeah. clear that those that rock that um, all of that off the track and you would start over. You'd bring in a new train, new caboose, new. But we've got to work with that system. So somehow we have to take apart what's broken and put it back together, and make it work again. And that's why I call this just a we the people effort. This is not me. My job is to give the power back to the people. I will be totally reliant on the average citizen that has they they have a business. They're working in an industry. They're impacted by an industry uh, or an agency. And they come and say, here's the solution. It's going to be a lot of work and it's not going to be quick. I mean, I'll do whatever I can as quickly as I can. Uh, but then you face the barriers of needing a, a revision to a statute unless we have the House and the Senate, you know, or, or unless people are willing to do what's what's best for New Mexicans and overlook the special interest groups. I mean, I see this governor every day catering to D.C. as mm -hmm. if she's still a congresswoman mm -hmm. and that it, I am going to cater to the everyday New Mexican. And I hope that there will be enough people in the House and the Senate that will come along. It's going to take a lot of work. Yeah. Sure. I think you've done a good job because I think you swerved into it not being, we've asked most of the people who have come on our program who are you know, vying for the same um, uh, office. Do you understand the buzzsaw that you will be entering into right now? Yeah. You're no threat because you're just some lowly house member of the house. And, you know, you know, I don't think the Democrats agree that I'm not a threat. I'm in my third term and Brian Egoff spent over a hundred thousand dollars trying to deceive me. There's, there but, is, but, but there's a, but there's a difference the between that and there's a difference between when you're in the big house, right? Um, everyone, everyone who has had your, your perspective on how the state should run or how government should run has run into a, oh God, I don't want to put on the tinfoil hat, the deep state within their state, the entrenched bureaucracy, um, you know, they've, they've already weaponized ethics complaints against you because you are a threat. Uh, do, do you understand? I guess the question yes. is, you do understand so the nastiness that will come, what you want to do. I have always been in a high risk, high liability industry. That's what you get when you work with vulnerable populations. Uh, and, and so I, I, I never, ever dreamed that being a volunteer house representative would come with all the attacks and lies and suits that I faced. And I've gotten pretty thick skin. And I think that I'm unique among the other candidates in that. And I figure if I'm going to be in a perpetual state of being attacked, uh, Democrat, uh, progressives, I don't want to say I'm elected by Democrats. So these are progressives and politicos that if you are a person of integrity, they say you lack it. If you care about children, they say you don't. And so they try to take the who you are, Mm -hmm. the, the what drives you and call you the opposite and discredit you. And I will not let them define me. And I figure if I'm going to live my life and give up everything, give up everything, time with my children, my daughter's pregnant, I'm about to be a grandma, time away from my husband, if I'm going to, thanks, if I'm going to do those things. And she still lives in New Mexico and I, I'd really like to keep it that way. Um, but if, if I'm going to do those things, I might as well go for the, for the fourth floor. So I'm, I'm an A-type personality. I can't see myself just sitting in the house and being beat up session no, after you session don't, you don't when I think I can do yeah, that. Yeah, I think, I think you, don't, you don't definitely strike us and to the audience and actually a lot of your supporters, they, they like you because 
seem to be a little feisty. And I think we need much, much more of that. I'm feisty, but I'm not mean. But at this point, I'm a mom on a mission. And I feel like my constituents sent me to be their voice. And House Bill 200 was one of the ones that really sent me. This was a bill that that uh, Steve Mc, uh, Matthew McQueen had to carry because not a single representative, Republican or Democrat from my district would carry that House bill. So it took a, an environmental lawyer with a special interest that lives outside of my district to carry that bill and to ignore the voice of my constituents and the constituents from many counties down south, including those represented by Democrats, mm. and to force a bill just because they had the votes showed me that um, even with gerrymandering, even with two thirds of the, the, the House and the Senate, when they're not getting the bills through that they want, they're doing it now through executive order rules and regs and the appointment of radical people on boards and commissions that we have no choice but to win the governor's seat. It has to happen for the everyday New Mexican to have any power back. What was House Bill 200? House Bill 200 was one that uh, took what was a we, we actually won a, a water lawsuit in New Mexico. And on the on the Gila, water is flowing into Arizona and we want a suit saying that it's ours. So if we put up some sort of way of capturing that water or increasing the watershed or some sort of diversion, then um, we could keep that water in New Mexico instead of watching it flow to Arizona. The second, it's been in lawsuits over decades. The environmentalists say that the Gila is a free flowing river, even though there's multiple diversions, even including dam diversions. There's even concrete structures, but they call it the only free flowing <clears throat> River And so there's a movement to have it designated as wild and scenic, and that sort of disenfranchises the folks who irrigate on that, that the Gila now. And so the, the local authority, there's a, a commission uh, made up of local representatives, water users right here along the Gila that have the say in how that water money would be spent. And, and they advise the, uh, the Interstate Stream Commission, that bill took the, dissolved that board and made the water trust board, which is appointed by the governor, the people in charge of that. Yeah. So yeah. you're willing to do a lot, obviously. I think you've proven that. Um, but when it comes to New Mexicans, what would you ask them to do? Oh, gosh. This is a David and, David, uh, David and Goliath for anybody in the minority running for a statewide office. It's been a long time since a Democrat incumbent did not get a second term. This is not my race. I am just willing to run on behalf of New Mexicans and take your voice to Santa Fe. I believe that when I'm elected, my job is to give the power back to the people. So I need everybody. We received we've received contributions from 27 states. I don't I don't know if all those people know who I am, but our governor is notoriously known as one of the worst governors in the United States right now. So people all over the United States are sending money. I got a ten dollar check in the mail and I was proud to deposit it. I mean, I am I need money. I need volunteers. Your time is money. So I'll take your time. This is going to, if you've got a good place to put up a sign, if you want to wear a t-shirt or a hat, I mean, this is grassroots, please um, go on Facebook and like my Facebook page. Uh, message me if you want to help get involved. Uh, send a contribution through Rebecca for nm.com. Uh, it's, this is a, this is us. This is about the everyday New Mexican. This is about business owners having say over how they operate their business. This is about parents having control of their children's education. This is about New Mexico thriving. It's time we need, all we have to go is up. <laughs> so it's time for change. Yeah. I, I think that's it. I yeah. really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, it's been a good talk. Um, and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Well, thank you so much for having me and the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Yep. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Baco, what are we doing? 
Uh, hello, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in. This next Sunday, August 15th, we will have Ronnie Lucero, who is chairman of Republican National Hispanic Assembly of New Mexico. Kind of a big deal. We've had a few few of the other uh, core members on here, so that'll be good. And other than that, um, do we have anything to shill other than freedom and liberty and New Mexico love? Or are we done? Are we selling anything today? Likes, shares, subscriptions, all that stuff. We really we have a we are on the iTunes, we are on the Spotify's, and we are on the Google Podcast. So yeah, you know, when this is uh, post show, I'll do my magic and that'll be up. So please uh, subscribe or follow, depending on which podcast app you're using. We also have a obviously a Twitter page at NM Rising One, right? I believe this. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. And, right. and of course, yeah, like, share, subscribe on Facebook. Um, and of course, yeah, give us some love over on YouTube as well. New Mexico rising. Other than that, we're good. I Take us out of here. Good. All right, guys. Have a good day. Thanks.